I, I want to begin. It's, I was thinking about this this morning as I was driving in. Um, it's, it's almost halfway through 2022. Can you believe that? Like we're, we're coming up to the, the beginning of June, the end of June, halfway through 2022. And it made me think a little bit about this. How many of you, just quick show of hands, don't be afraid to engage, a little bit of crowd participation. Okay, it's okay. Um, how many of you, generally speaking, begin the year by making New Year's resolutions? Wow, like five of us. The rest of you have no resolve. You have no ambition for anything, right? Okay, so for the five of us who did make resolutions, how many of you have kept them up till now? One, two, and you're probably lying? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. There's something about making resolutions. First of all, I'm a huge fan of making resolutions or at least commitments. And it doesn't have to be the beginning of the year. There's something deeply biblical and deeply Christian about making commitments. Because the Christian faith, if you think about it, it is a commitment and a resolve, is it not, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ all the days of our life? Amen? Amen. It's important, listen, that we understand that we must continually revisit the commitment that we have made to Jesus Christ. Many of you are probably familiar with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, in 1722, arguably uh, America's greatest theologian, in 1722, listen to this, at the young age of 19 years old, he wrote a list of 70 resolutions that framed the goals of his life. I just want to read two of them to you to give you a sense of where we're headed this morning. And I think they're, they're very applicable. Resolution 42, listen to what he says, resolved frequently to renew the dedication of myself to God, which was made at my baptism, which I solemnly renewed when I was received into the communion of the church. The next resolution, resolution 43, reads like this, resolved never henceforward till I die to act as if I were in any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. I think those are, those are incredible commitments. Think about it, at the age of 19, and he would read these 70 resolutions over every week of his life in order, listen, to make sure he was walking the right path, committed to the right thing. And, and listen, church, I, I want to encourage you in this. We too need to make these kind of resolutions, maybe even again this morning together. What I love about Jonathan Edwards and what I trust is true of you is that he is resolved to live a life that is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul calls us to hear. And I'm going to focus, we, we've read this together already, but I want to focus on one verse, just chapter 12, verse 1, and I want you to hear it again. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, let me just pray one more time for us. Father in heaven, would you incline our hearts to hear your word? Would you, Lord, work in our hearts right now in such a supernatural way to draw our hearts to yours? 
Lord, create in us a longing to be committed to you, to follow you, to submit and surrender every part of our lives to you. Spirit of God, work now through your word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This passage, this verse is a call to commitment. It's a call to be resolved in our Christian life, in our Christian living. It's a call to be resolved to have a life of worship to the Lord. And I just want to give you two simple points this morning that will help us live lives of worship unto the Lord. First, a life of worship requires comprehensive understanding. A life of worship requires comprehensive understanding. And you'll notice that Paul here begins in verse 1 by making an appeal to us, brothers and sisters. There is a sense of urgency here. He is pleading with us to pay attention. And I, I need you to hear this because what Paul wants to do is he wants to kind of grab us by our, our shirt collars, pull us in, and he wants us to hear something very important. He wants us to know, listen, that, that regardless maybe of how we've been living, of how we've been following the Lord, of how we've been pursuing Jesus, things can change today and they ought to change. And if you're doing well in the Lord, he wants to grab a hold of you and say, hey, loved one, keep going. This is so important. This is one of the most important things you can understand. There is urgency in this appeal, but notice it has both authority and affection. He's appealing to us as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want you to hear there is a very fatherly kind of appeal and affection here. His appeal is built also on an affection for the Lord Jesus Christ for the grace of God. In fact, look at what he says. He says, and I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, it's important that we understand what he means by this. The word therefore is a pivot word in this letter to the Romans. If you know anything about the book of Romans, you, you know this, that Chapters 1 through 11 are giving us essentially an exposition of the gospel, an explanation, an unpacking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the meat of the gospel. And then right here in chapter 12, he pivots on all that content and information, and he begins to now apply the gospel to the Christian life. So this word, therefore, is the pivot, the hinge upon which this entire book turns and now becomes something that we must embody in our lives. For 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. And so he's expecting, in a sense, that you grasp already the content that he has delivered in these first 11 chapters. But in case you aren't that familiar with them, let me just give you a real quick, broad overview. In verses one through chapters 1 through 3, excuse me, what he does is he shows us how the gospel is God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners. He reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us is deserving. Both Jew and Gentile have fallen short. And as a result, all of us are deserving of the just judgment and condemnation of God. Not one of us is off the hook. Not one of us is good enough. And then in chapters five, four through five, he describes how he is giving his son to die for sinners, for us. 
He tells us that the key to salvation is to be justified, to be made right with God. I like to say it like this. We, we were, were required to have the righteousness of God, the justice, the just, uh, justification from God. Here's what that means. It means we must stand before God just as, is, as if we've never sinned. Okay? But the second side of that is equally as important. We must stand before God just as if we've always obeyed. So, so we need not only our sins expunged and paid for, atoned for, we actually need a perfect righteousness applied to our account. And Paul shows in chapters 4 through 5 how Jesus has done that for lost sinners like you and me. Praise God. Amen? And then he moves on and he shows us that in chapters 6 through 8, that God has sent to us his spirit He's made us his children, and we've got all the blessings and benefits of the life of Christ and the union with Christ and this supernatural power and new desires. But one of the things you need to understand is up to this point, he's shown us that our natural state does not require mercy, but judgment. The natural fallen sinner does not deserve mercy. The natural fallen sinner deserves judgment. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that there has been this great reversal. Now, when you get to chapters 9 through 11, one of the things that you should pay attention to is this key word that Paul keeps driving, this thematic impact of this word mercy. So when he talks about in, in chapter 12, verse 1, he's appealing to us on the mercies of God. He's actually reaching back, yes, to the entire letter up to this point, but specifically he's drawn our attention to the word mercy. Let me just give you a real quick uh, list of these. Romans 9, 16, for salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And his purpose is seen in Romans 9, 23, to make known the riches of his glory. Listen to this, for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. More than that, listen, in Romans eleven thirty, 30, he shows us that just as the disobedient Gentiles received mercy, he says, so too disobedient Israel looks at the mercy shown to undeserving Gentiles and it makes them jealous so that they now too look to Jesus and receive mercy. Finally, Romans eleven thirty two: for God has consigned all to disobedience. Listen to this. So that he may have mercy on all. We all come to Christ the same way. It is by the grace and mercy of God which causes Paul, listen, to erupt in that, that, that unbelievable doxology that we read earlier together at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. And all God's people said... Amen. You see, he's, he's just blown away by the mercies of God. And this, this is so instructive for us because this comprehensive understanding of the gospel is foundational for Christian living and Christian commitment. For the Christian, there is unity between theology, doxology, and conduct. 
there's a, a logic or a flow to it that we see in the scriptures. You could say it like this. What we see is doctrine leads to doxology, and then that, that erupts into duty. It leads to duty in the Christian life. Or you can say it like this. The principles of our faith lead to the praise for our faith, and then out of that flows the practice of our faith. So here's what I want you to see. According to Paul, the greater our comprehension of what God has done for us in the gospel, the greater our commitment to Jesus Christ should be. That's why the more you grow as a follower of Jesus Christ, the more you grow in knowledge of Jesus Christ, in your understanding of the gospel, the more your life ought to reflect a commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The gospel of God is to be embraced, it is to be meditated on, it is to be taken to heart, and then it becomes this magnet which is drawing us into this deeper commitment to him. I think this is what the, the great hymn writer Isaac Watts meant when he wrote these words, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And, and church, can, can you just see that Paul isn't making a suggestion here in this appeal? It is our obligation to think about what Christ has done. It is our joy, it is our duty to consider the gospel and to make our commitment to Jesus accordingly. There is scarcely anything more important for building our commitment than an increasing, comprehensive understanding of the greatness of God and his mercies to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the gospel, God has mercifully transformed believers from enemies in rebellion against him into sons and daughters at peace with him. And in light of this transformation, the thinking and behavior of God's people must actually stand in stark contrast to the world in which we live. And this is part of what Paul is going to continue to unpack in the rest of this letter, which is why the very next verse, by the way, tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That there's something here, isn't there? That this commitment to Christ becomes increasingly more evident as we refuse to be conformed to the ways of this world, to the, the secular, humanistic, prideful thinking of this world, and instead to be transformed into to Christ-like followers of Jesus Christ, minds and hearts shaped by the gospel, by a love for our Lord. Which is why that commitment is expressed secondly with wholehearted devotion. And that's what a life of worship requires. It does require this comprehensive understanding. But when we have that, we ought to move to this place where we have this wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, according to Paul right here, wholehearted devotion actually has two prominent characteristics. He tells us first that it's total. And secondly, he tells us that it's reasonable. It's rational. It makes sense. Now, I want to just preface this. We're going to dig into these two aspects in just a moment, but I want to preface this by saying that I think most of us, have, if you've grown up in the church, one of the things you realize is that it's, it's easy to claim um, that we have Christ. It's a very different thing to demonstrate that Christ has all of us. 
And, and I just, I, I don't know where you're at today. I, I don't know what kind of a season you've been in. And even with your, you know, your walk with the Lord, maybe there's been a time in your walk with Christ where he really has had all of you and, and you've been so faithfully following him and, and you've been so meaningfully engaged in, in, in fellowship, in the church, in your, your walk with the Lord, your personal devotional life is rich and, and it's impacting how you think and how you live. Uh, maybe you're there and if you are, praise God, this is simply gonna hopefully come alongside you and give you an extra boost boost to excel still more. But if maybe you've been lacking, maybe if you've been, you've been apathetic in your Christian life, maybe if you've been lagging, there's a little bit of worldliness that's crept into your life and you can tell because you become spiritually lethargic. You're just, you're tired. Your heart doesn't gravitate to the things of the Lord. You've given up the fight to draw near to the Lord. You've just allowed this kind of drift to set in place. If that's you today, then I just, I want you to hear this. There's so much grace for you today. There's grace upon grace. You realize that the gospel, the mercies of God, God saved you when you were at your worst. If you're a child of God, listen, he, you are loved by God right now. And the heart of the father for you is to grab a hold of you and say, listen, enough of the apathy, enough of the spiritual lethargy, enough of the, the sliding away from me. Today is the day to drive the stake back into the ground and to get back after the things of the Lord, because the time is short and the day of the Lord Jesus Christ is drawing near. Amen. So listen, I just, I just want to like invite you to listen. And if the Lord is even just right now stirring your heart, this is going to be a great morning for you because listen, making a commitment and a resolve to follow the Lord again today will only result in spiritual blessing and joy in your life. It'd be so good. So good for you. So listen, here's, here's the first thing we see when it comes to a wholehearted devotion. It's a call for a commitment that is total. And the totality of the commitment comes powerfully to us through the language of sacrifice. I want you to notice how Paul frames this. He says, he appeals to us by the mercies of God to present your bodies, look at this language, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To present or to offer ourselves is actually a technical Term and it's used for the ritual presentation of a sacrifice in the Old Testament. He tells us that what we're presenting here, what we're offering, is our bodies. And our bodies signifies more than just the, the physical flesh and bones that, that are a part of us. It signifies the totality of who you are, your, your mind, your will, your emotions. Yes, it involves the eyes and the things you see, the hands, the feet, every part of you. It's a call for a, a wholehearted commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I think we all know is that when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, following Jesus as Lord doesn't just happen automatically. We don't just all of a sudden submit every part of our life. We still struggle to submit certain parts of us, parts of our thinking, parts of our behaving, parts of our speaking to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But the call here is a reminder that we must actually make a conscious decision. We can't go on auto, autopilot here when it comes to how we live the Christian life. There is a call here to simply come before the Lord and say, here, here I am. I'm giving all of myself to you, 
God, I, I, want, I want every stone unturned. I want you, Lord, to shine the light of the gospel into every dark corner and crevice of my heart. And Lord, when I start drifting back into the darkness, I want the light of the gospel to come blasting back in. I want the glory of Jesus Christ to grip my heart again, to expose my sins so that I might no longer walk in darkness, but walk in the light of Christ. We offer our bodies, he says here, as a sacrifice. That is living our lives as holy and acceptable, pleasing to him. So what exactly does that mean? That's, that's the question we ought to be asking when we look at this text. Well, Paul is again referring to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. He's grabbing that language and he's bringing it forward and applying it in a new covenant context. He's referring here of the, the temple uh, priestly duties. So why does he use this language? Well, because the imagery emphasizes the New Testament theology of our union with Christ, of our intimacy with Christ, of the presence of Christ in us. And all you have to do to understand this is understand a bit of the, the concept of the temple in the Old Testament. The Old Testament temple was this place of worship. That was the place that the people of God went to because that is where the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. But this has always been the heart of God for, for his people to be in his presence, to be, be near to him. And, and throughout the scriptures, what we see is that the, the temple and tabernacle are an important theme that unfold God's plan to dwell with humanity. If you go back to, to the first chapters of Genesis, one of the fascinating things you see is that Moses, as he writes these chapters, he wants you to see the Garden of Eden like a cosmic temple of God. And he places man in the garden and the best part of the garden isn't just the, the beauty and the food. The best part of the garden is that man walks with God. I mean, he, he actually enjoys the presence of God. He walks with him throughout the garden. Imagine that for your morning devotions. But we know the story. We know that sin comes in and destroys what God makes good and, and man's relationship with God is broken and, and the, the cherubim are placed at the, the entrance to the Garden of Eden in many ways to prevent man from getting back into the presence of God because now sin has so destroyed that relationship that to be in the presence of God would mean he would be utterly destroyed. But God's desire and heart for his people is that they would dwell with him and he would one day dwell with them again. And so we see God giving them the tabernacle, a portable kind of temple, a tent that they brought with them through the wilderness. And every time they set it up, the presence of God would dwell there. A reminder that man was always meant to dwell in the presence of God and God longed to dwell with his people. Finally, they get into the land and they, they put a, a temple there, a, a permanent structure. And in the middle of the temple, the glory of God comes down and dwells in this holy of holies. Here is this reminder, listen, that this is what God longs for, for his people. He wants to be with his people. He wants his people to know the nearness of his presence, to enjoy him forevermore. And then Jesus he comes on the scene in John chapter one. And, and do you remember what he says? It says that he came and he dwelt with people, dwelt among us. He tabernacled. That's what that word literally means. He tabernacled among them. And it's fascinating. Then you get to John chapter four and we have this story, this engagement of Jesus with this Samaritan woman. Remember that? And there 
She tries to tell Jesus that we worship God here in Samaria on this mountain, but you Jews say, she says, that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus turns to her and says these fascinating words, the hour is coming and is now when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, I want your whole lives. It's no longer, worship is no longer restricted to a physical location. Why? Because Jesus has come to fulfill the sacrificial system. Jesus has come to be be the great high priest. Jesus has come to be the spotless lamb of God. Jesus has come to fulfill the very temple itself. Here is the presence of God with man again. And now, as a result, church, this is the awesome thing. He has made us, his people, a new temple. He has poured his spirit out into us. His spirit dwells in us individually, but corporately as the body of Christ. We are incorporated into this great spiritual temple. I love what Peter says. Look at 1 Peter 2 verse 5. I think it's on the screens here. He says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. That's temple language. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It sounds exactly like what Paul is saying right here. The place that they used to go in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, it's no longer necessary The place we go is no longer a place, it's a person. And that's why, church, listen, wherever you go, you worship because Christ is in you. The presence of God dwells with you. And so the life of the Christian is to be viewed as a life of unceasing worship, where every act, every thought, every word, every part of you is an opportunity to present to God worship that is holy and acceptable and pleasing to him. By the way, the fullness of this worship will one day experience, isn't this great news, in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. I love how Revelation 12, or 21, 22 describes this. It brings this temple theme to a close. Here's what John will write later. He says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. It's a reminder, listen, that there is a day coming, loved ones, listen, where you will see Jesus face to face where sin will be utterly eradicated from your life and everything you do for all eternity will be an offering of worship unto God that is holy and pleasing to him. We approach the Father not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the spotless lamb of God. We no longer, this side of the cross, offer animals. But I want you to see what's so fascinating. We do offer sacrifices. Did you catch that? What is the sacrifice we offer? Ourselves. And think of the the irony in this statement. The sacrifice we now offer is not our death, but the wholehearted devotion of our lives lived for his glory. And I just want to make this clear. When we're calling one another and encouraging one another to follow the Lord, to commit to the Lord, to live for the Lord, I hope you understand that we're not doing this to gain God's favor or to gain God's mercy. We do this because we have received God's favor and received God's mercy. Amen? 
I mean, so, so here's how you have to, too many of us, we live the Christian life in more of a legalistic kind of way. We, we think that if I just pull myself together, maybe I've, been, I've had a rough patch, maybe I've been living in sin, so if I just start to live a better life, somehow God will be more pleased with me instead of seeing that we are made perfect and holy positionally, we're made righteous by the blood of Jesus, and if we go back to the mercies of God, it enables us to live, listen, not in order to gain God's favor, but because we've already received God's favor. And this changes, this changes how you live the Christian life. We're not trying to earn anything. It's, it's a response of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ. We don't live to pay God back for what he's done, Christian, okay? Now, we use a phrase, I'm sure uh, you've heard this before. I use this often, that we are debtors to grace. You heard that phrase? We are debtors to grace. Now, now you got to think rightly about this phrase. This does not mean that we repay God for the grace that we have received. If we repay God for grace, you want to know what does that, that does to grace? It ungraces grace. It degraces grace. It makes it not grace. Because grace, by definition, is the unearned favor of God. No, to be a debtor of grace is to live, listen, Christian, out of the joy of God's grace, the gratitude of grace. And so, so hear this. If you have received the grace of God, if you know the mercies of God, God is demanding the full energy of your life, the full living of your life for him. Our life is the evidence of grace and it is the expression that we have received God's grace. I want you to notice that we are not only the temple, the building, we are also, according to Peter, a holy priesthood. So what were priests supposed to do in the Old Testament? Well, one of their functions was to offer sacrifices. And this is why Peter says that we are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We must present our bodies, our whole beings, every part of ourselves to him. We present ourselves to God as holy sacrifices, those that are acceptable to God. What does this mean exactly? Well, it means that we do not give our lives over to sin. That's the first thing it means. And Paul's already dealt with this all the way back in Romans chapter 6. It means that we don't give ourselves over to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. It means instead that we are slaves of righteousness. We use ourselves, our bodies, as instruments of righteousness. One of the fascinating things that Paul is going to do is he's going to show us through the rest of this letter, especially chapter 12, all the way to the middle of chapter 15, he's going to show us that one of the marks of God's grace in our lives is how we love one another and how we love the world around us, even those who persecute us and hate us. So let me just ask you a simple question. What areas of your life are sealed off from God today? In what ways is your thinking more conformed to the world than it is to the word of God? It's possible that some of you are here today and you've never actually surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You've, you've never bowed the knee to him. You've, you've been trying to live the Christian life. You're like, why can't I get any traction? Why don't I have much desire for him? Or maybe you're here today and you just, you just know, I, I am, I'm, I'm living for myself. You've embraced what the world wants you to believe, which is this, that, that true joy and happiness comes from personal satisfaction. Instead of understanding what the Bible says, that true purpose, true joy, true happiness is found in personal sacrifice. 
in giving yourself up to God, the one who sacrificed all for you. Maybe today you can put your finger on an area of your life and you know, you just, you just know, I'm not, I haven't given this over to the Lord. I've, been, I've pulled this back from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And maybe today you need to give it back over and drive that stake back into the ground and let him know that your commitment to him is total. It's all of you. Secondly, we see this, that a commit, it's a commitment that is reasonable. And that means... Uh, reason, reasonable or rational, you'll, you'll notice here that the word that's used is, is your spiritual worship. There's a bit of a debate here amongst translators about what this actually means. And, and I think it's, it's most compelling to read this and understand this as, as reasonable. It's a reasonable sort of worship unto the Lord. When someone, um, you can think of it like this, when someone is unreasonable, they're, they're very often irrational. Isn't that true? I mean, just think about the last person you got in an argument with and, and they were just absolutely irrational and not making much sense. That person is generally also unreasonable. You could think of it like this. Um, sin makes you stupid, okay? They just put that as a model for your life. I promise you, every time you face the opportunity to sin, every time you're thinking about temptation, just remind yourself, sin makes you stupid. It makes you irrational. It makes you unreasonable. It causes you to gravitate towards things that are hurtful and harmful to you. So they don't make sense. Why therefore would I do it? See what I'm saying? Sin makes you stupid. And the Bible actually tells us this. This is the very nature of sin. In defining the Christian life of worship to God as reasonable, Paul is contrasting what he's actually already said about the unbeliever's life of worship as unreasonable. And all the way back in Romans chapter 1, he's brought this to our attention. He's, he's spoken of the fact that we were created to worship the creator, but because of sin, we irrationally worship creation. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 1, 23 through 25. Here's how irrational sin is and how it affects our worship. It would be on the screen here too. This is what man did. Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They were stupid. Sin. Sin messed up their, their worship of God and caused them to worship foolish things. But you see, here's, here's the truth for you and for I. Everyone worships something, okay? Everyone worships something. It's impossible not to because it's fundamental to human nature. That's what we see here from this text. You were created to worship. The only question is, what or who are you worshiping? Humanity's problem, if you want to boil down humanity's problem to one simple reality, here it is. Humanity's problem is messed up or disordered worship. That's the heart of humanity's problem. Irrational or unreasonable worship. All of humanity, apart from the grace and mercy of God, have de-godded God. But the gospel addresses our disordered worship. That's what Paul is getting at here. 
It provides us with forgiveness and grace, right? Here comes Christ, our Savior, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. He dies in our place. He cleanses us from all of our sin and unrighteousness. He gives us his perfect righteousness. He gives us a new heart with new desires for him. And listen, at the heart of those new desires is a heart to want to worship him. We no longer want to worship the things of the world. We find them empty and bankrupt. They're fleeting. They're, not, they're unsatisfying. They don't, they don't deliver on what they promise. And the spirit of God within us reminds us that we are temples of the living God and we exist to know him, to love him and to worship him with our whole lives. The gospel you see reorders our worship. And logically this makes sense. The logic of the gospel is, is very simple. Here it is. Here's the, the math equation. We give all to him because God gave all for us. That is why it's unreasonable and illogical to only give part of yourself to God. That would be to, to, to express or to, to, to somehow display that perhaps God only gave some of himself for you. It flips the gospel upside down. It's like a consistent struggle we have where we don't give all of ourselves over to God. You know, we'll say things like, like this. We won't say them verbally to God, but we'll say, you know, God, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my money, but I won't give you my purity. God, I'll give you my mind, but I, I won't give you my hands. Or I'll give you my hands, but I won't give you my mind. God, I'll give you my Sunday, but I won't give you my Monday through Saturday. I used to have this bracelet, um, don't hate, WWJD, remember those? Come on, come on, I know. Come on, I wasn't ashamed, it was red, I wore it in high school, I was proud of being a Christian, and I was like, you know, I was always thinking like, okay, what would Jesus do? But you wanna know something? I've come to realize that the, the, the best question you can ask is not what would Jesus do? The best thing you can do for your heart and to live obediently in your life of worship unto God is to, to remind yourself of what Jesus did do. What did Jesus do for me already? And if, and you know, here's why, if you get this church, if you get this, if you can constantly remind yourself that Jesus gave all of himself for you, I promise you, I promise you, if you get good at meditating upon this, refreshing your heart by this, then every time you face temptation, every time you face the opportunity to sin, you constantly go back and you're reminded, he did this for me, he gave all for me, I must give all for him. The gospel reminds us, listen, that when God is asking something or for something from you, listen, he's not asking for something that rightly belongs to you. He's asking for something that rightly belongs for him, to him. He purchased you. He owns you. Not some of you, but all of you. And this is a call to continuous worship, offering ourselves constantly you know, we, we often think that, that our worship is, is all about Sunday mornings. And, and believe me, this is one of the sweetest ways that we offer worship to God. It's one of the most important ways we offer worship to God, our corporate gathering. These moments are precious. I believe the spirit of God dwells here among us in a unique way. This is so critical for living a life of worship, but it's not all there is to living a life of worship. I used to have a pastor um, back in my seminary days who used to tell us, you know, uh, um, Sunday morning begins Saturday night. You ever heard that? Hear that? 
I think we need to change that. Sunday morning begins Sunday afternoon, okay? The moment church ends is the moment you continue worshiping God until the next Sunday comes around and fuels your heart and fans that flame and you keep worshiping God every moment, every day. And when you stumble and fall, you refresh yourself in the gospel, you recommit your life back to the Lord and you keep marching on in faithful worship of our great God who is deserving of it all, amen? We love to start in our culture. Many of us are good at starting. We struggle to finish. We love the spark of a match. Something like exciting about a match being lit. Maybe that's just if you're a young boy. <laughs> I got two of them, believe me. They like to light fires. But listen, they're not good at keeping the fire lit. And God is not wanting us, listen, to simply light a match that's gonna burn out quickly. Enough of that kind of Christianity. He wants us to light a candle and he wants us to tend to it daily. He wants us to keep it burning strong consistently for Jesus Christ. The thousand little decisions we make each day, committing ourselves to Jesus, offering true worship, every part of us, every thought, every decision, all for him. This wholehearted devotion is a commitment that is reasonable and rational in light of what God has done for you. What are you not giving yourself? Why are you not giving yourself to God? Here's the deal. You have no good reason and neither do I. If you're in Christ today, you have no good reason. You may have a reason, but I promise you it's bad. I love how one author sums up this life of worship in context to the church. This is, this is for you. This is not just about your personal walk with the Lord. This is how we do this corporately. He says this, life as a living sacrifice ultimately means that we focus our entire lives to the service of Christ and his church. We are not just isolated individuals, but a people brought together into a family. We are brothers and sisters. The way we worship God is expressed, listen, fundamentally and primarily in how we treat one another. If Paul's words mean anything, Above all else, we should desire to serve Christ and his church. This must be the focus of our energy, our work, and our life. If Christ is not our top priority, if he is not our greatest ambition, then we should pray, pray right now, that he would grant us the proper perspective so that we would pursue the life of discipleship to live our lives as a living sacrifice unto him. You see, a life of worship to the Lord requires comprehensive understanding of the gospel, the mercies of God, and they should lead to wholehearted devotion. It is a commitment that is total, and it is a commitment that is reasonable. God wants you to see that he gave all for you, and now God demands all of you. You say, well, what should I do? Well, it's very simple. Bow before the Lord today and make that commitment again. And when you wake up tomorrow, listen, bow before the Lord and start your day. Remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that God gave all for you and commit every day to get up and say, God, all of me for all of you. I invite you to pray with me now.